chorus representing God, tenderly calling to Francis as the saints approaching death hails the eighth and final scene of Olivier Messiaen's vast opera, St Francis of Assisi. With an orchestra of 119 musicians, a chorus of 150 singers, seven solo sung roles, three solo on Martineau, the early electronic instrument that Messiaen made so much his own, no less than 2,000 pages of score for the conductor to get to grips with, it's no surprise that St Francis of Assisi was eight years in gestation. Finally receiving its first performance at the Paris Opera in 1983, less than a decade before Messiaen's death. Kent Nagano was assistant conductor for this production, eventually living and working with Messiaen at his home for almost a year. Previously, as music director of the Berkeley Symphony Orchestra, Nagano had initiated a cycle of Messiaen concerts, at which point his long-standing relationship with the composer began, as he remembers here. It was then, when he came, that he began to talk in depth more and more about his ideas about the opera and asked if I would join the preparation team. So it was a very fertile time, I suppose, to, to come to know Messiaen so well. Messiaen had asked me to um, supervise the rehearsal period in, in the Paris Opera because the main conductor, Seiji Ozawa, was very, very busy and because of his schedule needed to go in and out. But the Paris Opera had allotted an extraordinary amount of rehearsal time. And for Messiaen, it was important to have a um, a constant control over, over what was happening to make sure that for all of the rehearsals, be it chorus, be it staging rehearsals, be it individual coaching, that somehow there'd be a very, very consistent control over the aesthetics and, and basically someone with whom Messiaen himself could regularly dialogue to make sure that things were, were evolving in, the, in a direction that he felt comfortable with. Depicting pivotal events from the life of St Francis of Assisi, the opera is formed of eight distinct scenes or tableau that span an epic five hours of music. But although Francis is presented in the opera as a historical character, Messiaen made no attempt to give a narrative portrayal of his life. Instead, each of the eight scenes plays a role in presenting Francis's progress towards a state of supreme grace. I chose him, Messiaen writes, because of all the saints, he is the one most like Christ, morally through his poverty, chastity and humility, and physically through the stigmata that he received in his hands, feet and side. Perhaps given the extreme nature of this and other events portrayed in the opera, including St Francis's kissing of the leper and his magical sermon to the birds, it's important to understand that for the deeply religious Messian, these were not symbolic but very real events, witnessed by many and undisputed by the composer. In the light of this, it's interesting to know that for Messiaen there was also a far more everyday, even secular attraction in the subject of St Francis of Assisi. He had a real liking for the Francis figure and also himself had a great identity with it because of Francis's unusual ability to communicate with nature. St Francis of Assisi can be seen as a culmination of Messiaen's life's work. 
In the composer's own words, a synthesis of my musical findings and, even more importantly, an unprecedented attempt on my part to express my Catholic faith by means of a subject that conveys its principal mysteries. It contains virtually all the bird calls that Messian, a keen ornithologist, had noted down in the course of his life. All the colours, says Messian, of my chords and all my harmonic procedures. But the opera goes beyond simply summing up Messian's spiritual convictions, compositional techniques and well-established sound world, exploring new territory most significantly in the organised chaos of scene six. Depicting St Francis's Sermon to the Birds, from the wren, the turtle dove, the robin and the blackcap to the more exotic species of New Caledonia. It liberates itself from the rhythmic rigour so often associated with Messian's writing, each bird here taking flight in its own tempo, independent even of the conductor. Messian's claim that this opera owes nothing to anyone and less to the birds seems most pertinent here. It was the first time that he wrote truly aleatory music in terms of rhythm and in terms of tempo. He wrote the pitches to be played and he gave character, personality indications 
lively, very lively, where the conductor is simply meant to give a start sign, and then that is the point for the solo player or group of players to then play ad libitum, to play the notes, but to play it phrased and in the tempo that they wish. This was, for Messiaen, something very, very new. The fact that he would let go of something that wasn't tied to some main pulse that was going. Why would he somehow release these birds completely divorced from the ongoing pulse of time? And I feel, looking back and in retrospect, I didn't understand it at the time. I think this has something to do with uh, the personality of Francis and with the sense of freedom that he realized when he realized for the first time that, in fact, he could communicate with the birds. He doesn't know it at the beginning of the sixth tableau, but finally realizes when the birds are listening to him that he has this unusual and wonderful ability to speak with the birds, and then he's convinced, because the birds wait for it, to give them a sermon, the sermon to the birds. And this freedom, this emancipation, must have something to do with with the emotions of the feeling that Francis was feeling at the time. The nocturne of the stigmata scene also offers up some new techniques and bizarre sounds, as hummed choral and sliding viola clusters, tremolo or martino figures and brittle violin arpeggios produce sound effects unlike anything else in the opera. Alternating as they do with sections that could have been lifted from Messiaen's serial experiments of the 1950s, with each note value, pitch and intensity fixed to produce a cool, objective musical landscape, the dusty, evocative whisperings of this music are all the more strange and effective.
but more bizarre still are the rumblings of the geophone, an instrument invented just 10 years previously by Messian for his large-scale ensemble work Des Canyons aux Etoiles, From the Canyons to the Stars. Made from a drum filled with thousands of small lead pellets, the instrument is played by slowly swirling the drum to emulate the sound of dry earth crumbling. Needless to say then, St Francis of Assisi is a celebration of Christian faith through sound and music. Messian writes, God dazzles us by excess of truth. Music carries us to God in default of truth. Thou speakest to God in music, he is going to answer thee in music. Know the joy of the blessed by gentleness of colour and melody, and may there be opened for thee the secrets of glory. Yet, the opera almost didn't get written at all. Despite a youth spent at the piano playing through operas by Gluck, Mozart, Berlioz, Wagner and most significantly Debussy, Messiaen had never embarked upon writing one himself and was very reticent to do so. He could see no way of going beyond what had been achieved by Alban Berg back in 1922 with Wozzeck. Or so it seemed. For now, St Francis of Assisi has taken its place in the canon of 20th century operatic works, emerging for Kent Nagano as one of Messian's most significant achievements. I think for me, as profoundly as I uh, believe in the works and the entire canon of Messian, that St Francis of Assisi 
is somehow rising out and it's being remembered somehow in the 21st century. We hear of performances now often enough that it's no longer an isolated event. We hear of performances happening actually quite regularly all over the place. And that's a wonderful realization for those of us who worked on the original premiere. In his own words, Messiaen's starting point was inspiration, pure and simple, as powerful and incomprehensible as love. Was Messiaen's belief in God the source, then, of this inspiration? For him, the source of his inspiration was clear, and he wasn't shy about giving tribute to his uh, profound belief and how he felt that somehow it was through this belief that inspiration was given to him to write the work, But he also was clear to respond to the question which often came, is it necessary to be a believer to fully understand and have a relationship with your music? And his answer was always no, that once the creative process has happened, in a sense, the work exists and then the composer has to be free to then allow the piece to live through people's own relationships with the work. But from living with him in his home and uh, working together with him, there were a number of parts of the day, if not throughout the day, when one was was clearly aware that spirituality was something uh, not only essential but simply obviously to be a part of the day. Um, In the dining room, in the living room, sitting at the piano, there was a very, very clear understanding that somehow the presence of inspiration was there and, and it certainly wasn't coming only from human beings that were sitting in the room. But it seems to me that inspiration is the key word there because this is not pious music, it's exuberant and without a doubt it's a celebration of human existence, which it seems to me St Francis of Assisi is too. Your point is very well taken. If you think of, for example, the works of the 40s, Taranga Lila Symphony, for goodness sake, with these wild uh, final movement number 10 and crazy movement number 5, these are such outrageous declarations of human emotion and brilliant representations of the kinds of extreme emotions that we humans are capable of feeling. St. Francis of Assisi, Messian also gives human emotion broad scope for expression, avoiding didactic religious evocations in favour of a liberating celebration of the religious experience. Clearly, it's impossible to consider the opera in isolation from its religious subject, and yet it appeals to listeners, religious or otherwise, because for Messian, God is in everything, in the concert hall, in the ocean, on a mountain, even on the underground. It is this, he said, that my music seeks to express. Ultimately, and in purely musical terms, Messian's religious convictions had a profound effect on the variety and complexity of his musical language, but also significantly on its simplicity, its capacity to speak directly to the listener. 
Although St Francis of Assisi is a very long opera, the story is in fact a simple one. The first scene, The Cross, finds St Francis explaining that perfect joy is to be found in patiently enduring suffering. In the second, Louds, St Francis asks God that he might meet a leper and overcome his fear by loving him. This is followed by the kissing of the leper, a central scene in the opera in which St Francis does indeed embrace the leper, who is cured and dances for joy. In scene four, the journeying angel disguises himself as a traveller, knocks at the door of the monastery and attempts to enter into religious discussion about predestination, after which in scene five, the angel appears to St Francis as a musician and plays such blissful music that it sends Francis into a faint. The famous Sermon to the Birds forms the sixth scene and the seventh sees Francis marked with the stigmata. The eighth and final scene depicts the saint's death as he utters the words, Lord, music and poetry have led me to thee. In default of truth, dazzle me forever by thy excess of truth. Messian was not interested in presenting any of the darker or more ambiguous aspects of St Francis's life. The work is not a biography, but rather a meditation. In Messian's own words, I know only too well that it is an act of temerity to describe, scene by scene, the infusion of grace into the soul of one of the greatest of all saints. It is an inner drama from start to finish, yet there is something undeniably splendid about it. I'd like the audiences to be as dazzled by it as I am. Given Messian's lack of concern with character depiction or development, it makes absolute sense that this opera is structured as a set of ritualistic tableaux. 
The formal dislocation from a forward-moving sense of time is also reflected in other aspects of the music. From his earliest works, Messian tried to express a sense of immutability by means of very slow movement and a highly colourful musical language. But is St Francis of Assisi in fact an opera at all? Again, it's best to think about what Messian said. He said it was not an opera. He said it was a spectacle. Of course, he had to call it an opera because it was being performed in an opera house. It was an opera commission. But he was referring more to the form that he had in the back of his mind. And what he oftentimes offered as a citation was to think of the model of Romeo and Juliet of Berlioz or the damnation of Faust of Berlioz. And once he even referred to St. Matthew Passion as a reference point and asked, what is this? What is Romeo and Juliet? Is this an opera? Well, no. Is it an oratorio? Well, no. And Messiaen's point was that it's a very special form that's quite well known in France. That's called a spectacle, a spectacle. So it looks as though with St Francis of Assisi we may not in fact be dealing with an opera in the most true sense of the word. What then is it that gives the work any right to be called an opera at all? I think it's the idea of something with intense dramatic content where obviously text, soloists, chorus have a role, orchestra also has a role. There is some sort of theatrical element to it and there is the process of a telling of a story but not with the automatic structural forms that we would expect from Italian opera or from a German opera. Rightly or wrongly, we have certain expectations when, when we think of 19th century opera and early 20th century opera. Arias, for example, or terzettos, or quartettos, or fixed numbers separated by either zingspiel forms or recitativo or dialogue. Those basic constructs you don't really find in St. Francis of Assisi. Although St. Francis of Assisi retains something of the dramatic tension so important in opera, the vocal writing itself is not conventionally operatic in scope. In fact, the singers for the most part sing long note values, more like psalmodizing priests than operatic heroes laying claim to the stage. <laughs>
As the author of his own libretto, Messiaen was able to compose words and music simultaneously and therefore diligently to avoid placing certain vowels at difficult registers. This, too, adds to the transparency of the vocal writing throughout most of the opera. Griffiths, who's written a lot about Messiaen, finds a wonderful analogy of a medieval manuscript of text and illumination, as if the orchestra were providing great initials, pages of pattern and images of the supernatural, while the plain black characters of the chant continue. One exception to the rule of vocal simplicity, however, is in the music for the leper. Clearly a response to the physical and spiritual torment of the character, Messiaen here creates music that's jagged and jerky, with sudden outbursts of emotion. rather surprisingly, the vast chorus plays an often more central role in the opera than the soloists in creating a huge palette of vocal colour, as well as performing a number of different dramatic functions. In nearly every tableau, except the sixth, the chorus sings a final hymn-like or chorale-like moment, restating the story, albeit in a much more lofty philosophical way. But in addition, the chorus creates special effects takes us to different worlds, helps us become sensitive to senses of smell, senses of touch, thinking of the agony in which the leper is and the leper describes how he's left unbathed and in misery with his open sores. And the chorus sings very, very strangely at that moment. So one has a heightened sensitivity as the public of what that must feel like. There are other moments where the chorus creates the sense of unnatural. For example, in the seventh tableau, as Francis is about to receive the stigmata, the, the chorus sings in cluster chords, where all 12 tones are, are being sung, but one still, because of the voicing, has a feeling of a modal center. Very interesting moment. <laughs> chorus of scene seven, creating a heightened sense of tension there. But the chorus can also serve as the voices of both Christ and God. Mm -hmm. 
Messian's depiction of the divine. But it's not only human and divine voices that concern Messian in St Francis of Assisi. Far from it. Some of the most important voices to speak in the opera, as they did throughout Messian's work, belong to birds. Messian's passion for ornithology and his extensive travels to collect birdsong means that in St Francis of Assisi we encounter birds and colours from across the globe. I recall that when the sixth tableau finally came, it received an emerald green paper cover. All of the others were brown or beige coloured, but the famous Sermon to the Birds came in this beautiful emerald green. And apparently, according to uh, Yvonne Loriot, this was a colour that Messiaen chose because it referred to very, very strong references which referred to Nouvelle Caledonie, New Caledonia, a trip that Messiaen took from which he absorbed and learned about many different kinds of bird song that he included in St. Francis of Assisi for the first time. And he was particularly struck by the beautiful water and the colors that lay within the water, the sort of iridescent green, he refers to this very often. And I suppose this funny color that he chose for the paper to cover the, the sixth volume was reflective of those colors that he saw in New Caledonia. Messian's love of birdsong, going hand-in-hand hand with technological developments in the 1970s, also had an interesting impact on his use of one instrument in particular. It's important to realise that this was written for the newest version of On Martineau. The instrument that I have, for example, is one of the first versions of the On Martineau, uh, invented by Maurice Martineau, and this, the instrument I have comes from the 1940s. The... 1970s version of Theon Martineau was much more advanced. Um, it had much more capability in terms of virtuosic playing, uh, in terms of different timbres that you could use. You were able to control with both feet instead of one foot, also from a new sort of type of ribbon that was used. You could move much more quickly with clarity. Everything became transistorized instead of these old tubes, and with that came... Um, an enormous uh, set of variations that a performer could use. And if one looks carefully at how the own Martineaux are used, they're primarily used in Francis as exotic bird calls. And I cannot imagine any other instrument being capable of convincingly sharing not only the notation of the birds, but the esprit which the birds sing. Perhaps it's no surprise, given Messian's long-standing fascination with both birdsong and with the music of Wagner, that he made use of leitmotif-like themes throughout his work, melodic or harmonic fragments that could, like the song of a bird heard overhead, immediately identify a species, character or emotion. One comparison with St Francis of Assisi that immediately springs to mind is Messiaen's extended piano work Vingt Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus, 20 Gazes on the Infant Jesus, from 1944.
As there is a strong visual impetus behind the opera, not least from the frescoes of the Italian Renaissance artist Fra Angelico, so too are many of these piano pieces visually inspired. This attempt to depict spatial rather than temporal events gives both works a ritualistic quality, in which leitmotifs or themes act not as narrative forces but rather as a focus for our contemplation. As the title of Vin Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus implies, we are gazing upon events that to Messiaen were unequivocal, rather than entering into a discourse about them. For this reason, Messiaen's use of themes is totally unlike Wagner's use of leitmotifs, which act as a tool for symphonic and dramatic development. Rather, Messiaen uses his themes both as signposts within the opera's huge musical landscape and as a means of shifting between one musical colour and the next without losing dramatic coherence. Let's take a look in more detail, then, at how he does this in the third and one of the most important scenes of the opera, the kissing of the leper. Depicting the double miracle of the leper's cure and Francis receiving beatification, the curtain to scene three rises on a room in a leper hospital. From this setting, the leper's theme emerges. It's a motive that we see Messiaen use very often, an organization of rhythm that he can then state in fragments, in completed form, in extension, or in retrograde. By the angular and twitchiness to this theme. One's imagination is automatically then sympathetic to the agony and the pain, the frustration and the psychological torment that the leper character feels uh, throughout the first three-fourths of, of this tableau. That motive can really evoke uh, anger and uh, aggressiveness. But when it's slowed down, in one-fourth of the speed, less than half of the speed. It can also be something terribly soothing and have a lullaby characteristic to it. Messiaen exploits this motive to develop a real sympathy for the character, for the personality of the leper and also for the circumstances under which he has to live his life. Because he also uses this rhythm, doesn't he, in his dance at the end of that? Absolutely. At the end, when it's stated in a major tonality and it's stated as a wonderful uh, 
almost a ballet moment, a, a moment of great, great dance. One has the feeling of soaring and leaping joyousness, especially when it's uh, within the context of the harmony that's being presented. The orchestration also gives a tremendous um, uplifting feel to that motive. It's one of the more brilliant moments of the opera. As Francis appears, we hear his theme on violins. But on seeing the leper, Francis quickly recoils, not once, not twice, but three times. Joy on woodwind, xylophone and trumpet, familiar to many perhaps from Messiaen's earlier Tarangalila symphony, makes a hopeful appearance as Francis seats himself at the leper's side. The leper bemoans his condition. What peace can I have from God, who has taken from me all that was good, who has made me all rotten and fetid? Over Francis's solemn theme, the saint responds, how can one understand the cross if one has not carried it for a while? choral clusters suggest that Francis's attempt have done little to pacify the suffering leper. The dialogue continues with the leper describing himself as a leaf stricken with mildew. 
Saint responds, If the inner man is handsome, he appears glorious in the hour of resurrection. climax is followed by a notable silence, as important as the music itself, and used to great effect, a technique that Messiaen loved to employ. The very, very first time I conducted Transfiguration de Notre Seigneur Christ, I remember Messiaen said, Kent, a little longer pause, s'il vous plaît. So I made a little longer pause, and then he came up to me again and said, Kent, S'il vous plaît, un peu plus long pause. And then a third time he said it, and I said, Mes chers maîtres, uh, uh, combien de temps vous voulez? How much time do you want this pause really to be? And he said, Well, I can't really tell you in terms of seconds. I'll just tell you when it feels right. So he stood next to me. And, uh, of course, it was one of these very special moments after a particularly strong and intense statement of a, of a climax. And we waited for a long time. It must have been nearly 30 seconds before he would allow the music to go on. And that, that was a, a great lesson to learn because those 30 seconds could be 20, they could be 40, they could be 10. It had to do with the overall phrasing that was taking place. So it was learning the, the feeling that even though there's a moment of silence, the sense of time is still flowing through. It's a very, very active moment. And um, that's part of the Messian style that one eventually has to, um, to come to terms with. Silence is used to make a deliberate statement again a little later in the scene. This occurs immediately after the decision theme, an assertive figure that signals decisive moments in the action for the saint.
which is followed by a reiteration of the joy theme, signalling Francis's forthcoming embrace of the leper. which is celebrated with a long, quiet melody on muted strings and on Martineau. And when the angel, sung by a soprano, appears, a brief theme is heard twinkling on the xylophone, playing the song of the exotic jerigone bird from New Caledonia. The fact that the angel is able to walk with feet not touching the ground, and Messiaen describes as the angel walks in almost dance-like steps. And it's remarkable because the dance itself has no weight since the feet aren't touching the ground. And this bird that sings in such um, familiar but yet constantly expanding and contracting statements of the same few notes is a brilliant illustration of this wonderfully positive angel that comes to visit. The angel reassures the leper with one of the most important texts to appear in the opera. Leper, leper, your heart accuses you, but God is greater than your heart. The theme of joy is heard three times and the leper begins to dance, his jagged opening rhythm, short, long, long, short, long, now transformed with ringing bells and trumpet fanfares and the blackbird heard singing overhead. Although the leper laments that he is not worthy of being healed, the scene ends in a spirit of celebration, with the chorus singing the words, to those who have loved a lot, all is forgiven. Oh. 
So, with these ideas and motives in mind, now let's hear the third scene in The Kissing of the Leper from Olivier Messiaen's St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> 